1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Myra Bradwell the right to practice law specifically because she was a woman. Ms. Bradwell apprenticed, passed the Illinois bar exam, and had support from legal professionals. But the decision to deny her the right to practice law rested on the idea that women were, quote, never contemplated, unquote, to be members of the bar. Things have changed since then, but not without the sacrifice and fortitude of female lawyers. In our first two seasons, we met with a dozen or so female jurists who talked about their backgrounds and paths to get on the bench. This season, we'll expand on those stories and interview lawyers throughout the state of Florida who are trailblazers in their practice areas and role models for male and female attorneys everywhere. Hello, I'm Hedel Desai, your host for Never Contemplated. Today's episode is a true treat. As many of you know, I'm an administrative law judge with the state of Florida's Division of Administrative Hearings, also known as DOA. Every year, administrative law judges from around the country meet as part of the National Association of Administrative Law Judges, also awkwardly known as NALJ. This year, the conference was held in Tampa, Florida in October, and I was invited to speak about hosting a podcast. Instead, I floated the idea of doing, for the first time, a live recording of Never Contemplated, interviewing Rebecca Bandy, the director of the Latimer Center for Professionalism. The stars aligned, and I'm happy to present you with this live recording. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed talking to her. Today we are recording this, and we're hopefully going to use the recording uh, for the podcast. So it will be our first time recording this podcast in front of a live audience. Let me introduce my guest today is Rebecca Bandy. She is the director of the Latimer Center for Professionalism, which is part of the Florida Bar. And I will be interviewing her today. We'll be recording it and then um, put it, using the sound for the podcast. And so I'm going to ask her questions just like I ask my other guest. I want to give you a little bit of background uh, for, you, for people not in Florida and if you have never listened. How many of you guys listen to podcasts, first of all? OK, about half the room. Um, of those, how many listen to legal podcasts? Okay, how many of those, uh, that's about maybe like 10 people out of this room. Um, <laughs> how many of those listen to legal podcasts that don't have to do with a murder? <laughs> <laughs> All right, same group. So, so the podcast that we have came out of, we have, um, I'm sure a lot of you uh, look for th ways to give back to the legal community. It's very hard as judges because we are restrained. We can't fundraise. We can't be in associations with attorneys, you know, advocating for anything in front of us. We're supposed to remain impartial. And so a lot of us end up on bar committees uh, for our state bars, on rules committees, things like that. And I was uh, brought in by one of our fellow ALJs, uh, Suzanne here in the back, uh, and said, oh, you'll really love this committee on professionalism. And so I joined. Uh, and uh, on that committee, we were faced with a, a couple of issues and uh, which we were trying to address. One of the issues was we had women, um, and I'm, I'm sure this is all over the country, leaving the legal profession um, at a much higher rate than their counterparts at a younger age, um, just leaving the profession totally to do something else. So that was one issue that we were addressing. The other issue is that the 
Center, I believe, ha has a, not only a website, but they had a newsletter. And we would write these, people on the committee would write articles for the newsletter. But the problem is that people who need to read those articles <laughs> are not the people reading them. And the people who do read them are already professionals, right? So, and it's hard to write those, especially, we're all busy people, we do volunteer our time to be on these committees. And so I think people, it was, I don't know, about th three years ago, and they suggested that we, we do TikToks, we do YouTubes, we do other, other use social media. And I'm kind of a dinosaur, so I, was not comfortable doing TikTok, but I had been listening to this podcast called Over My Dead Body. And I don't know if you guys have heard it, but it, is a, it, was a, it has a lot of, um, it, they cover different ones, but the first one was a Markel murder, uh, the Markel murder in Tallahassee, Florida, which is where we're from and where Doe is located, the central office. So, um, so I was listening to that and I suggested, hey, why don't we do a podcast? And we talked about it for about a year, and then COVID hit. And we couldn't do CLEs in person like we are here today. And we were thinking of ways to reach out to people and so people could get their CLE hours. And the Florida Bar and the Center and Rebecca, they had just, I think, started this office. They had hired a sound engineer who also did the video and did CLEs. And I'm going to let Rebecca talk about that today. But that's how this started. And so I'm going to start like we usually start all the time. Um, and we are recording. So I have introduced Rebecca. You can read her, her bio um, in the Nalge uh, brochure. And let me, for our listening audience, let you know that we are recording this live from Tampa, Florida, in front of uh, a group of about 100 administrative law judges who are attending this conference for the National Association of Administrative Law Judges. And welcome, Rebecca Vandy. Welcome Hi. to the show. <laughs> Hi. There, I'm nervous because I was telling her it's one thing for me to nag people to be guests on our podcast. It's a whole other thing for me to be the guest on the podcast. So I am very excited to be here today and um, we're very proud of this project and what we're able to do with this um, amazing uh, platform that we've developed over the last three years. So Rebecca basically is the producer of the podcast and she makes sure that we have funding and gets gets things done. So we appreciate that too. But I'm going to start with you, Rebecca. And uh, everyone that we interview is a Florida bar member. Yes. We've interviewed, I think, 20 judges from all different levels, um, four law school deans from the state of Florida, University of Florida, uh, two agency heads, including Simone Marceller that we just heard from. Um, all women. We all should women. say all women. This and, is a, and the name of the podcast, Rebecca, why don't you tell us what's that? Yeah, so this came out of Judge Desai's working group in our standing committee for professionalism. And her subgroup, her working group, was the gender bias working group. And we were looking, as she was saying um, a few minutes ago, we were looking at why women were leaving the profession so much earlier and why they weren't coming back into the profession or there was a delay with them coming back into the profession. And so we developed this podcast as a, the starting point was gender bias, looking at gender bias in specifically the judiciary. Um, so our first season was all female judges and it was amazing. And then from there we've evolved. And so um, we've 
like she just said, looked at deans, we've interviewed deans, we've interviewed agency heads, uh, judges, but at the end of the day, um, it's all women, which I love. All right, we're gonna start at the beginning, um, and I know that you, when sometimes when you introduce yourself or when you've talked to people, you say that you, you that you're a country bumpkin, and <laughs> which is why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? So I'm a country girl, and um, my name is Rebecca, but it's really Becky Joe, and so <laughs> and I have a real heavy South Georgia accent when I've had, you know, when I'm around people from home or I've had a glass of wine, so I uh, have to hide that. But no, I'm from a small town called Hilliard, Florida, um, which is north of Jacksonville. It's you know, it's actually a suburb of Jacksonville. If you will. It's on the Florida Georgia line. It's in Nassau County. So tell people I'm from Amelia Island and then I go, but not the island. I go way west of the island on that side of Nassau County. I graduated with 50 people in my high school class at a public high school um, and uh, there was one red light in the town. Still is just one red light, although we now have a Wendy's. So we've, we've gone big time. Well, I know you are the first person in your family to go to college. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up. So yeah, I grew up really poor. Um, my parents were um, high school students and I was born on my dad's 19th birthday. My mom was 18. Uh, they married because that's what you did in my hometown. They were divorced when I was four. We lived in HUD housing. We were on food stamps. Um, and yes, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And by college, I mean like even what we used to call junior college. Um, so um, I had a really, you know, small town upbringing. I would like, you know, I was very poor, but it didn't matter because most people in my town were poor. So it wasn't like my family was ostracized. Um, but, you know, growing up, we saw limits, um, you know, to what we were able to do or what I was able to think about in terms of my future, um, which was hard. And I look back on it and I'm like, how am I where I'm at now? And I can tell you, I've been at the center now um, for seven, eight years and I regularly do speaking engagements. And I never ever lose sight of the fact that, wow, I cannot believe I get to do what I do. I'm speaking in front of a room of judges. That's amazing um, because I started out in a trailer, used trailer that we were renting and then a HUD housing um, complex when my parents divorced. Well, I know a lot of a, the judges in the room deal with government agencies and government benefits and the people who use them often appear in front of us. Um, what is it, so, is there anything that you can tell us that we should know about people and I hate to say this, but people who come from the poverty level or who have low income, is there anything, because most, most of us don't have it, had that experience. Is there anything you can tell us about that experience that would help us when, they, when those kind of people come in front of us? That's a phenomenal question. Um, maybe think back to this conversation and, and see my face. Um, my mom made sure that I could read by the time I was three. So she was 18 came from a poor family as well. Um, but there was, you know, she, she made sure I could read. I was a fluent reader and writer by the time I was three, four. Um, just because people are born into circumstances doesn't mean that they should be limited by those circumstances. Um, and so um, education was something that was just pushed in my family. And my, mom, my mom's best friend had gone to University of Florida. 
um, when she graduated from high school, and that was my godmother, my Aunt Nancy. And my mom would teach me to read and write by writing letters, having me, you know, reading my Aunt Nancy's letters, and then my Aunt Nancy would write back, and she would have me trace the letters out, and she would have, you know, have me write back the letters to my Aunt Nancy. And so, you know, they're real people, and especially the children, they don't know any different. And so, you know, you just have to realize that, you know, they didn't choose to be in that circumstance or to be born into that circumstance. And sometimes just life happens. Life is hard and circumstances can knock people down. And so if you can just really remember that, you know, how instead of, you know, coming at a judgmental standpoint, and I don't mean that negatively, but if you can look at those people with how can I help them get to the next level? Because they're certainly capable. Well, um, you got the, me emotional. I know, <laughs> I'm emotional too. Um, yeah. The smallest kindnesses, even in our courtrooms, can make a difference. In Huge these difference. Yeah. Huge difference. So, um, but you do end up going to college. Yeah. And I don't know if it was your Aunt Nancy. Who was it that, that encouraged you to, to go besides your mother? I had phenomenal teachers. And my mom would say, you know, we can't pay. I knew there was no paying for college. There was no money. Um, that was, you know, so my mom would say, you got to keep those grades up. You've got to push yourself. You know, we we're going to find that you're going to college. So that was never a question. And she stayed on me. At one point, she even um, became a custodian. And uh, our school is a middle, it was a middle and high school combined in Hilliard. It still is a school district. And by the way, that the irony of all this is later on when school grades came out, Nassau County is regularly one of the uh, one or two top school districts in the state of Florida. So I thought I was getting a very limited country education growing up. And the reality is I was getting one of the best educations in the state. Had amazing teachers and principals. But at one time, my mom became a custodian. I remember being in sixth, seventh grade and she was cleaning the bathrooms at the school and I was mortified, mortified. But you know what she was doing? Watching everything that I did. And she was best friends with the principal and she would chaperone our field trips and I could not escape her. And she was the mom that, and I was a cheerleader. I was, you know, I was into that kind of thing. It was homecomer princess. So I didn't have like this totally like bleak, you know, existence. I, I had a good life, but she was friends with the principal and whatever the principal said or whatever the teacher said, that was the gospel and I better fall in line. I should also say one of the people that influenced me the most was a gentleman named uh, Bob Williams. He was a judge in Nassau County, but he started his career as a school teacher and he would come over and emcee, you know, different things at our school and he had taught my dad and he remembered my dad and so he took an interest in me and throughout the years, every time I did something or had an accomplishment, he sent me a personal note or he would call me and thank me um, and he did that years and years and years. If I was in the paper, he'd send the clipping with a note and um, I saw him right before I left for law school. I went to his courtroom and um, he you know, gave, my, gave me his blessing. And I thought, you don't really know me, know me. And yet you probably had one of the you know, largest influences on my life of anybody else that I've you know, come across. Well, you make it to college. Where do you end up going? So I went to Jacksonville University. So, um, you know, it, it was such a blessing. Full scholarship to Jacksonville University. I'm a huge Dolphin fan. Some of the best professors um, at JU that I've ever had. Uh, just an amazing experience. And um, I studied communications with an emphasis on, on uh, journal, uh, excuse me, broadcasting and public relations, which is interesting because that's a huge part of what I do in my job now. Also a minor in history. So, yeah. But you don't end up 
you end up being a school teacher, right? Deal. So yes. I always wanted to be a school teacher, and I think it was because I had so many school teachers that were just phenomenal and such a good school that I grew up in. Um, and so I was the kid that when I was little, I would line up my baby dolls or line up my brothers and my, the kids in the neighborhood, and I had a chalkboard. I didn't play with Barbies. I played school, and I was always the teacher. So I always wanted to teach. So out of Jacksonville University, I actually took my first job with all which was new the cell phone thing was new this is in 1998 they moved me up to a small town known as Vidalia Georgia Vidalia Georgia the Vidalia onions um, I was working out of the Savannah market and thought okay this is gonna be my track into you know I'm gonna go into the corporate world but a job came open at a local um, high school teaching high school history and I could not turned down the opportunity. So I began teaching uh, with no education experience whatsoever. Um, and I was 24 teaching 18 and 19 year old seniors. <laughs> so that was fun and in the uh, very small rural area known as South Central Georgia. I used to, yeah, it, it was, it's only two, two and a half hours away from Jacksonville. Um, it's between Macon and Savannah, but it was like going back in time about 60 years and working for the Peace Corps. I mean, it was that much of a cultural shock. Well, you uh, end up getting your teaching certificate yes. from Georgia State. Georgia Southern. Oh, jo sorry, yes, Georgia Eagles. Southern, corrected. <laughs> yes. Um, and you end up working uh, in a small town again. Yes. Um, where this is like 1999. Yes, 1999. Where the high school is still socially segregated, oh, right? Oh, 100% segregated. Yeah, so, so tell us about that and, and where that ends up. Yeah, so I start teaching at this wonderful, and it's the sweetest little town. It's called Mount Vernon, Georgia. It's right outside of Vidalia. So um, I was in graduate school. I always thought it was Vidalia. No. <laughs> That's right. how everybody like outside French... of Georgia says it. Okay. So it's right. Vidalia. Uh, no, we make fun of people that say it that way because that's the proper yeah. way, but we're going <laughs> to slaughter it. Yeah, so they, I was blessed because the school district I worked for paid for my education. So again, another blessing where I didn't have to pay a dime for my graduate program. And I was at Georgia Southern uh, working on a social studies uh, teaching certificate on a graduate school level. So just, you know, doors just open for me. Um, and, and that was a blessing. But I love that little town, still love that little town. It's like my second home. But it was eye-opening because I was teaching seniors. I was teaching U.S. government and economics um, on an honors level uh, to these kids. And I, I get there and immediately they're like, oh, you're going to coach cheerleading. And I'm like, oh, that's great. You're going to coach the football squad. And I'm like, oh, okay, so only half the year. That's great. Well, the, by football squad, what that that meant was the all white girl squad. Um, and they all look like Miss Georgia contestants, like they could be Miss America and, um, you know, they're all shiny and pretty. And that was all great until I realized that there was also a basketball cheerleading squad, which was the all black cheer squad in 1999. Um, and then when homecoming came around, it's homecoming season. My son's high school is having homecoming this week. So, you know, this really hits home for me, but homecoming rolls around and they have a white uh, homecoming court. They have a black homecoming court. 
Um, and because of the agriculture in that area, we were getting a large influx of migrant workers coming through to pick the onions. And um, the you know ESOL program, the English as a Second Language program at that school was basically non-existent. And I did not speak Spanish, and, um, but because I was young and nice, they would put those students in my class. So I had this small group of these migrant kids who couldn't speak English, I couldn't speak Spanish. That was the extent of what we did with um, the ESOL program. And then you just had these segre this segregation that was going on in, in public high schools. Um, it was terrifying. Well, at some point, the New York Times comes in and yeah. you have a role in bringing them. The New York Times does a whole series. It came out, I think, two, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And then there was a documentary on this town and this high school. Tell us what your role was in that. It's very, very small, um, but I am proud to have a very small role in that story. So on the day of the white prom, um, the black students were in class. All the white kids were out getting ready for the prom. Um, and so, you know, again, this is a U.S. government class in 1999 and uh, 2000 at that point. Um, and so it was heart-wrenching. And we start talking. And one of my brightest students, Anna Rich, her, her name is Chafin now. She's married. Uh, we're still friends. But she stayed behind. And she was in class that day. And we have this really serious conversation about what really is going on in this town. And in not just that town, that region and other places across the South. And so, you know, we had this difficult and they were talking about lynchings and, you know, my mom, I'm on the phone with my mom telling her all of this later and she's like, call Oprah, call Oprah, Oprah's gonna fix all of this. And I was like, okay. Um, but, you know, it was eye-opening because as somebody from a small Southern town, I was close enough, I guess, to Jacksonville that, you know, I, we, we weren't raised this way. And so I'm 24 and I'm having to face these, you know, these issues and it was so heart-wrenching. And so I'm like, you guys need to do something about this and, you know, what can we do? And we start kind of brainstorming. Well, that's the end of my role in the story, but lo and behold, Anna wrote a letter to the New York Times. And Anna, you know, connected with one of their writers who then came down and began covering it. And that lady was so taken with the experience and with the community that she she stayed with the story and came down yearly to cover the prom story nationally on a national level. It was featured in Spin Magazine around 2002. Y'all, that school did not segregate, did not integrate rather their proms until 2013. 2013. So that really fired up uh, my sense of justice. Um, it, it, I don't know, it just lit a fire in my soul. Um, for helping people and for serving people and for making a difference in society. Well, you stay at the school for how many years? I was just at that school for one year. I went to the neighboring school the next year, which is, um, it was a Title I school and one of the poorest school districts um, in the state of Georgia. So again, a second year of just poverty. And like, I thought I was poor. Um, it made my family look wealthy, what I was seeing in these schools. We had no truancy issues um, because kids came to school to eat breakfast and, and lunch. And those were probably the two only meals they were going to get for the day. It was heart-wrenching. And again, segregation was a problem. Well, so you're teaching in, in Georgia, mm -hmm. and, um, but then you come home. Yes. And I'm not sure if you came home for law school, but you came home because of 
for, for family reasons still. Yeah, I came home for family reasons. So the second year that I was teaching in Georgia, the principal comes knocking on my door in October. Um, actually, the anniversary of it is this week, um, was this past week. Um, so the principal's like, you need to get your stuff and come to my office. And I'm like, what did I do? I'm like a little revolutionary, you know? I'm like, what did I do? Cross some boundaries. And so I end up in his office and he was like, your brother's in the Navy. And I said, yes, sir. My 18 year old brother, Carl. Um, and I was like, yeah how do you know that and he was like your mom called and he's on a ship called the USS Cole and he's I need you to look at this video he said but then I need you to get in your car and you need to go home and I'm looking at the screen and it's you know on the news and it's just this replay over and over again of the USS Cole which was bombed in October um, of 2000 it was a precursor attack before 9-11 it was also right before the Bush Gore election and my brother was 18 had just gone through search and rescue training he had um, he thought, you know, he'd been blessed because he had gone away to basic training and then they sent him back to Jacksonville for search and rescue training. He just wanted to sign up for the Navy to travel and meet beautiful women. And, you know, he's 18. He's handsome. He's living his best life. And he got to spend that summer at home. And then they took him to Virginia and he gets on the ship. I had no idea where he was. I didn't know what the ship was, but it was in the Gulf of Yemen and it was bombed. So that shook our family up really. Um, intensely um, the bodies that they were showing coming off the ship one of them looked like him but thankfully it was not him but his search and rescue training was put into full gear um, and while he was in the middle of doing that um, with his shipmates and helping them uh, they were stuck on the ship for two or three days and he began journaling and so he wrote a journal called the bloody isle which when he came back over and the news followed up with our family in Jacksonville and then he he ended up on ABC News. His journal is actually online. So you can Google the, his name is Carl Wingate. You can Google the Bloody Isle. It'll come up and it's just his, you know, 18 year old firsthand account of what he was living through on this ship that had been bombed after having shipmates die in his arms. I'm so sorry, but I'm, I'm glad that he made it back. I know that he had mental health issues. And he has PTSD, yes. He has P PTSD and the Florida Bar and, and the center. We, we emphasize wellness and things like that. I know it's um, some people, it wasn't around in, in our day when we were going through law school. Um, but what are the other things uh, that the Center for Professionalism does? Yeah, so we promote professionalism across the state of Florida. There's 111,000 attorneys in the state of Florida. Depending on the data, we are the third or fourth largest uh, bar in the United States. So we are not the discipline arm, we are the preventative arm. So we try to keep people out of trouble and give them lots of resources, including mental health and wellness, um, but also mentoring. Uh, the bar has a new mentoring program called Counsel to, to Counsel, which a lot of bars have reached out to us to find out how we're gonna implement this program and we're we're launching it um, this month actually uh, gender bias is another topic and we're super proud of this podcast um, I have to say kudos to judge Desai this is volunteer work for her and she's been doing this now for three or four years uh, when COVID hit we needed a way to reach our, uh, our members we were I uh, frankly scared I just hired my new assistant director at the time and I was like worried about job security we were working from home and so the podcast idea came out and it was so timely but this is all volunteer work for her and we're on what 
almost, I guess, season four, we kind of stopped labeling seasons a little bit, I think, but, um, you know, we've had so many amazing guests and when our prior platform would allow us to track the downloads on Never Contemplated, um, we moved to a different platform. So we don't have exact numbers, but we've had well over 10,000 downloads of this podcast. And each episode is free CLE credit for our Florida Bar members. What I like about it is, is it's like half an hour. So you could like, I don't listen to them after we, we do them. You don't? No. Oh, I listen to them on repeat sometimes. <laughs> I have to say too, so I have, um, I have a middle schooler and a, and a freshman in high school. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but like they listen to it. And so I'll put it on in the car and my you know, teenagers would never listen to me anyway. <laughs> well, I, that's because I'm not on it. So they're not going to listen to me, but they like to listen to you. But my daughter, especially my eighth grader, she'll say, is, an, is there a new podcast episode? Who's on it? To, you know, so no, it, it's not legalese. And this is what I stress to people is you're not going to get a legalese. No, we're not reading statutes and rules on this, um, you know, so that's something you have to force yourself to listen to. It's very conversational. She sounds like she's straight off of a PBS show. Um, she's amazing. Well, I want to focus on you. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> um, since we're here in front of a room full of judges, uh, what are some of the tips or resources that we that all judges and the world from all over the country, things that we can look for in our courtroom when we see attorneys that are making bad choices? We heard from. Justice Lawson yesterday about um, how we start off with joy and what and once we become lawyers, you know, we replace it with stress, which yes. is not good. What are some of the things that the center promotes or tips that you can give us for addressing problems we see in attorneys before us? I highly recommend mentoring you know, pairing them up with people. Um, if it gets extreme to the point where, you know, you're thinking, gosh, this might be something I need to report. Every circuit in Florida has something called a local professionalism panel. And these are panels that are encouraged by the Florida Supreme Court that allow local, um, local panels to talk, kind of mentor attorneys that are consistent problems um, in a private way to the point that, you know, they can avoid bar complaints. And so I know not every state has things like local professionalism panels, but it's the concept underlying it is like mentoring, peer, peer mentoring people. So if you can do that, maybe pair them up with someone or have someone talk to them or, you know, buy them coffee or just have a chat that really, really can make a difference. In your role as a director, do you know you must have counterparts in other states, right? Do yeah. you know if other states have programs um, like diversion programs or or mental health resources that a judge could refer them to? Yeah, so I don't know specifically. I used to serve on the American Bar Association's Committee on Professionalism. I'm no longer on that committee. I termed out of that committee, um, but that's a good place to start. I know we do a lot. I brainstorm a lot with Two Civility, which is the Illinois Supreme Court's professionalism center, if you will. Florida's really, really lucky that the center exists in terms of, you know, it's a, it's a Supreme Court ordered center. So 
you know, it goes beyond me. We've been in existence uh, since 1990, I think five or 1996 off the top of my head. So I don't know of a lot of bars having specifically um, professionalism centers. Most do have resources, especially where mental health and wellness are concerned, but also check out the ABA's professionalism resources because they're fantastic. You know, professionalism, what does it mean to you, first of all? Professionalism is what, and I got this from the ABA Standing Committee I used to serve on. There was a lady that was from Mississippi originally, but uh, was working out of Louisiana, and she said, it's what your mom and your grandma taught you about how you, you, know, you treat other people. And I was like, she's speaking my love language, 100%. So that's what I tell bar members, is what your mom and your grandmama taught you about how to treat other people. So civility is a huge issue. We have a very specific definition of professionalism in Florida. Um, the center's website has tons of resources and workbooks and everything to help with that. But there's four C's, character, competence, commitment to the profession, and then civility. So what we see most often is the problem is civility. And I think it's a product of society. I think it's a product of how the media portrays lawyers and judges. I mean, we all know, right? We all know. Everybody hates lawyers until they need a lawyer. Um, and so there's this whole societal thing going on. But the main thing to remember is that professionalism is how you treat other people. And if you can treat people with kindness and respect, right, and honesty, um, it goes a long way. And it goes a long way to building practice. It goes a long way to building your reputation. And you know what? We all have bad days. And when you have that bad day, if you've consistently shown that integrity and that good character and you've been a professional, that bad day is going to be easily forgotten and forgiven. Um, and so it's super important um, that we keep that in mind. So I think, is Judge Pitts in the audience? Neil Pitts? Yeah. Yep, yeah. So we had a discussion this morning about how it's getting worse. Yes. So the attorneys that are appearing before us, who else believes that it's getting worse? We are seeing more problems. I don't know how to phrase this. I don't know that they are different problems from what we've always seen. They just have escalated. So online, you know, we get the we laugh about it. I mean, it's the stuff we see. So I, I man our Twitter account. I'm in charge of our Twitter account for my department. X platform, whatever we're calling it now. And it's like every hashtag bad attorney story that comes up, I'm like, please don't be Florida. Please don't be Florida. And what is it? It's Florida. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Oh, yes, why can't we get it right? So, you know, we're seeing this stuff online, you know, the pleadings, the inappropriate pleadings, the pleadings that are not well researched, they're poorly written. We still get the aggressive emails. I'm like, how is this still an issue? These super aggressive, ugly emails, the poor tones, we still get the, you know, talking ugly to each other in court. I mean, it, it's, I'm, I'm saying this, and as I'm saying it, it sounds like I'm talking to preschools, like my kids when they were preschoolers. And yet, this is what we're seeing in adults. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. Um, you know, we tell people that email is evidence mail. And that's a good way to remember it. Email is evidence mail. So before you hit send, take that sacred pause is what I call it, where you really take a break and you go back and you reread it. I mean, it's so simple, stupid. None of this is rocket science, right? But the problem is, how can it be so simple and basic and yet so many people get it wrong? Um, and so, yeah, we are seeing an increase. So at this point, I'd like to 
take questions or hear stories or vent if you'd like since we we have uh, a few minutes um, but before we do that I at the end of the, each of our my podcast I ask the same question yeah which is if you were to give a, one piece of advice to a new attorney what would it be surround yourself with amazing people of it, you know, sometimes we think mentoring is, is, you know, oh, you sign up for a mentoring program in law school and that's your mentor and you go to lunch and maybe have a few, you know, drinks or whatever and then that's it. But I think it's so important that you don't just choose one mentor, but that you have mentors across your career um, of all levels, all ages, all you know, backgrounds, diverse, as diverse as possible. And you stick with those people and you really just let them pour into you. And then you turn around and pour into other people. I think, you know, my, I get so much joy out of my job and it's, it's not so much the day-to-day -day work, but it's the fact that I've had two uh, people in this room come up and hug me because I taught their students um, in my teaching career. Um, and so it's about the relationships that you build. Um, that's, that's where the meaning is. And the same thing with clients. I mean, when I was actually practicing, I practiced family law, criminal law for uh, five years. And, you know, I've, I've invested time and energy into these people and I've tracked their lives. And, um, you know, they're, I get to see them thrive after they go through that very stressful situation that they were in with me. So just people matter. People are the most important thing. All right, so any, any questions? I, I ask you to come up to the, the mic so we can record you. Now nobody's scared. Getting, nobody's scared. <laughs> Come ask us questions, please. And also, while you, while somebody is getting brave enough to do that, I want to also add that this is free and it's on all podcast platforms. So this is not just a Florida Bar website podcast. It's on Apple. It's on Spotify. It's on uh, any platform where you get your podcasts and you can listen in, in the car. But if you are a Florida Bar member, it is worth free CLE credit. I know we see we see some hands, but we need people at the microphone. Seeking your comments, you had made the, the point a few moments ago that you seem to see an increase in lack of civility. Yes. And I was curious if you have seen any sort of correlation between uh, the transition more to Zoom conferences and things of that nature, and it's a lot easier to be mean and ugly to somebody on a, on a comment online or whatever it is versus in person and with live hearings getting less and less frequent, et cetera. I don't know if y'all seen any sort of correlation between the two? Um, we have seen that, uh, especially at the beginning of COVID when everything was sort of online and, and we were all going towards Zoom. And so we were seeing a huge increase. We were, I mean, we made national news in Florida with the headlines about like um, attorneys that were in their pajamas or in their car driving or smoking or in their bathing suits. So there were, there were several <laughs> high profile stories that came out of, of course, Florida um, about that. So yes, there, there is that, but it's more we're hearing just societal as a whole people are just angry and in general you know less civil than I think traditionally we have been and so uh, we get a lot of complaints about emails and inappropriate pleadings tend to be you know huge does that answer your question yeah My question's more focused on within a hearing. So within administrative law uh, hearing, many ALJs in this room and across the country hold mostly telephonic hearings. 
And I know an issue I ran into many times, and I'm sure others have too, and especially I think it affects women more than men, uh, just basic disrespect. Uh, someone calling you by your first name or calling, I've been honey, sweetie, you, you name it. Oh, yeah. All those, all those terms. So do you have, either of you or both of you have suggestions for diplomatically yet firmly handling that disrespectful attitude, both by attorneys and then also by self-represented parties? Thank you. That's a great question. I think that's really what this podcast started out as, you know, stemming from was those yes. conversations. Yeah. So the conversation was there's a study done. I think it was Harvard where someone took all of the like the Supreme Court mm -hmm. uh, transcripts, U.S. Supreme Court transcripts. Justice Interrupted, right? It was called Justice Interrupted. That's right. Um, and did like a da like data <coughs> analysis, and the female justices got interrupted by attorneys more quite frequently more frequently it was than like the male it was a crazy thing to, to yeah. hear that it was going on at the supreme court yeah, yeah. so the one time the when I, I was talking to judge manco early with the example that i gave where i went off the record and said something and then i went back on the record was that the attorney was calling the male witnesses mr and then would call the female witnesses um, and there were quite a few witnesses uh by their first name um, and that wasn't toward another attorney, but it was something that I that after he did it once, I I just stopped the proceedings. We went off the record, and I asked the attorney why he was doing that, and he said he didn't realize he was mm -hmm. doing it. A lot of times they don't. I was going to yeah. say in the circumstances where it's happened to me as an attorney, and you know I had some pretty egregious behavior toward me as a young attorney, um, but. I think almost every time it was, they just didn't even realize they were doing it. Yeah. It's just, I don't know, poor behavior, but it's just being self-aware. But you have to, I think you have to be firm and you have to call it out and you have to bring it to their attention in whatever way is appropriate. Okay, I think this will be our last question. Oh, I don't know if we're over really or not. I don't, we have time? We've got five minutes. Oh, got ah. five minutes, great, go ahead. First of all, thank you both um, for this session. It's wonderful. I wanted to comment on um, the judge's ability to deal with the unprofessional behavior in the courtroom, um, because both of you know it's near and dear to my heart on professionalism. Um, I go as far as actually entering orders on professionalism in cases, or including at the end of an order on an evidentiary matter, um, reminding them of the professionalism expectations of the Florida Bar, or if it deals with, if the behavior is targeted toward um, a particular issue like depositions or responding to discovery, I'll cite to the particular um, rules or expectations on that. Um, and it, it's actually pretty effective. Um, I realize I wouldn't be able to report somebody until after a case was closed. I mean, I, I think that would be um, completely inappropriate. I wanted to ask if you could briefly share with us, um, Rebecca, your, I heard a lot about your story and then it kind of ended, like you came back um, after your brother um, suffered that incident. But why did you choose to go to law school to advance your career? That's what I wanted to hear about very quickly. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, actually, we, got, we got distracted. <laughs> it was on my list, but. It's okay, thank you for that question. And I taught her daughter as well, so, um, so excited. Um, so basically, I, I, I never, 
in addition to wanting to be a teacher and kind of being that kid that just always was drawn to education, I always thought, dreamed of being a lawyer. But that was something I never saw as possible. And so I squashed it. And when I was in Vidalia and I was working in those very segregated school systems and I just had this overwhelming need to help people on a deeper level. And you know, to be frank, I was dating an attorney um, at the time and he encouraged me. He was like, you're getting out of here. You're gonna go to law school. I'll help you as much as I can. You know, get out of here. You're gonna do something else. And so I, I moved back home. Um, we were healing from my brother being on the coal. He had just come in to speak to my eighth grade civic students in Yulee, Florida, where I was teaching in Nassau County. And 9-11 um, happened. Like, 9-11 happened. And it was like, okay, all right, it's now or never. Like, you know, what am I doing? Like, life is, is real. And so right about that time, Legally Blonde came out. And so my little cute eighth grade students were like, Miss Bandy, you need to go to law school. And so I actually, I joke, but I kid you not, we did it as a lesson plan. And I, mean, I was broke, I was teaching, I was at a very limited income, and I said, all right, all right, we're gonna do this. I did it as a lesson plan. And I you know, taught them about applying to take the LSAT, and I was frank with them. I don't have a whole lot of time, I'm coaching, I'm doing this and you know I may not make the score and if I don't make the score what's our plan and then I get my score back and I had enough money to apply to three colleges and so I was frank with them about that I went through the application process with them and how you write a you know an essay and so they're cheering me on but I was very frank I may not get in you know you guys I may not get in and so I applied to three schools I applied to Florida Florida State my mom was a Florida fan my dad was a Florida State State fan, randomly Tennessee, I'm not sure why because I'm still a Georgia resident, so I really should have gone for UGA. Um, and I told the kids, I said, whichever school, if any of these schools let me in, whichever lets me in first is where I'm gonna go. And on Valentine's Day, I got my acceptance letter to Florida State University. So, go Knowles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I wanna thank you, Rebecca, again, for joining us. I also wanna thank the National Association of Administrative Law Judges for inviting us and allowing, indulging us actually to do our first live uh, audience podcast. I wanna thank uh, the Latimer Center for Professionalism uh, for, and uh, Clay Shaw and Katie Young who uh, help make us sound really good uh, when we get on the air. Um, I also wanna thank Carl Knowles and uh, Matthew Schott for helping us do the sound today and recording here in Tampa. You can find uh, links to the CLE number and links to uh, NALJ, which is what the national, what we call the, the association, um, in the episode description, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Thank you very much. That's it. Thank you. <laughs>